Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Lila Rose Show. We have a really important episode this week. Um, I'm so thankful for all of you who have been tuning into the podcast recently. It's been really awesome and exhilarating to get back into podcasting, and there's so much to talk about, so much to discuss. So this week's episode, a little bit of a trigger warning. So we will be discussing some really important but uh, challenging topics. Um, It will be a discussion about Um, sexual abuse, as well as forgiveness and healing. And so our amazing guest, Josanne Marie, I'll introduce her her in a moment, will be sharing her story um, and her uh, just how she overcame a lot of incredible hardships in her life um, with the power of God's love and grace and mercy. So I share this because if you're listening and you are listening with children, this might not be a good podcast to listen to with kids in the car. Or if you are listening to this um, and you're wondering if you should share it with a friend or somebody who's really young, I would say high school age on up um, would be the right age for this podcast. I'm also going to be sharing um, some resources for those who are survivors of sexual abuse or other people who are looking for healing. I will have some resources to connect with in the podcast description. So without further ado... I'm so excited to welcome my friend, Josanne Marie, under the podcast. I met Josanne about two years ago, maybe more than that now, three years ago, through a mutual friend, and I was just struck immediately. She's a very talented, um, beautiful person, and she's a poet, she's an award-winning actress, and she's also an author. And it was her book, Beautiful, after reading it, that I really became um, acquainted with her story and realized how incredibly important it was for people to know her story, um, how inspiring and freeing it could be. So I'm going to have Josanne on. She's going to be discussing that story, and we're going to have an amazing conversation on um, not just sexual abuse, which is a crisis that affects so many people in our society. Um, One out of every, some statistics say that one out of every nine underage girls are abused by an adult their childhood. Um, and one out of every about 50 young boys are abused by an adult. But there are other statistics that say one out of every four or five adult women experience some kind of sexual abuse um, and even uh, rape, including rape um, from their own dating experiences. So sexual violence is a, an absolute epidemic. Um, I have a lot of thoughts on that. We're not going to get into it all of those in this interview. Um, We're going to talk about it more from the lens of a survivor and the healing and the forgiveness that sets um, survivors free. But I will say that, you know, I did an episode on pornography. I've done an episode, episodes on what the proper um, view of sex is. I'm going to be continuing to talk about this because I think the sexual violence in our culture is directly tied to the brokenness and the confusion um, and really the appetite we've created for sexual objectification, um, which is an appetite that has been created because of the way we sell sex um, and the way that pornography, porn use, including violent porn use, um, is continually on the rise. So with that said, I'm really um, looking forward to this powerful discussion. And without further ado, Josanne, thank you so much for joining the Lila Rose Show. Oh man, thank you so much, Lila Rose. It's, it's such an honor to be here. And just the amazing work that you do is um, inspiring. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad to be here. Yeah. Well, thanks for making it happen. I know we've been talking about doing an interview for over a year now, and then the <laughs> coronavirus happened, and all the craziness. And then we were both in LA. We we're going to do it in LA, and now I'm up in Northern California. So right. I'm glad we're <laughs> I'm glad we're finally doing this. No, so funny. first of all, um, tell everyone a little bit about your yourself. I know um, I shared a little bit, but 
Who is wow. Josanne Marie? Who is Josanne? <laughs> um, Josanne Marie. Well, you know, the first thing I would have to say before I share about the things that I do, because that's a very interesting question, you know, identify myself first as a child of God. And it seems such a like, mm-hmm. you know, answer, but it is because I feel like everything mm-hmm. that I do um, comes from that place of my identity. And so, you know, God has allowed me to write and do poetry and um, to act and tell stories. And, you know, um, I'm a Jamaican girl. I was born in Kingston, Jamaica, Um, moved to the U.S. when I was uh, 10 years old to the Bronx, New York. (laughs) And, yeah, big move. And... um, you know, and I'm sure we will go into that later, but I moved, lived with, you know, my family on my dad's side and um, just basically coming as an immigrant, having a dream to do great things. You know, most times when you leave your country, no matter where you're from and you come to the United States is for opportunity, you know, and um my my grandmother sent me here. You know, we had a big um, send off, and it's like, go be great, go do something good, and bring us back a lot of stuff. <laughs> when, so you were ten, and yes. you were your grandma sent you to New York by yes. yourself. Yes. Well, I came wow. with my I came with my my brother. So okay, he's from a different mother, but same dad. So we both came here at the same time. So she puts you on a plane, yes. and you're off. Okay, I'm off. and then. And what was your dream? You said you had dreams and you come, you know, as an immigrant come to the U.S., you have dreams. What was your big dream I as want, a little girl? I always wanted to be an actor from I was mm-hmm. uh, um, an actress from I was a little girl, to be honest, um, because uh, it all started, believe it or not, with the Cosby show. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I always played Vanessa when I was little. Like, it was like, I want to be Vanessa. And I would rehearse her lines Aww. in the mirror and just, all, you know. Um, but my Jamaican parents, grandmother, was like, acting does not pay the bills. And she had, you know, she read a lot of the Enquirer and stars. So she thought that I was going to end up either on drugs, <laughs> um, oh, <God>. <laughs> have a lot of sex with everybody. Like she just read everything that was from the Enquirer and she's like, you're not doing that. Um, so what did she tell you to be instead? Did she have an, an alternate plan? Oh, there's, there's only three things you could be in Jamaica, a lawyer, a doctor, or engineer. <laughs> those are, those are your not too options. bad. Yeah. <laughs> not as fun. <laughs> So, um, so tell me how it turned out that you're, so you're born in Jamaica and you are with your brother, your half brother, your mm-hmm. grandma sounds like is a big, I mean, I've read your book, so I know your story, but our listeners don't yet, at least yeah. the ones who haven't read your book. I recommend highly beautiful by Josanne Marie. So beautiful, we'll link, unashamed and unafraid. Yes. Beautiful, <laughs> unashamed and unafraid. We will link that in the, in the um, episode show notes so people can find it. Yeah. But tell us how you, first of all, you start your life in Jamaica Tell us about your childhood and then leading up to that that big monumental move to New York. Okay. Um, well, you know, like I grew up in a, I would say an unconventional home because growing up, I used to see a lot of my peers, little girls who was raised with a father and a mother in the home, regardless if it was dysfunctional or not. 
But with me, I just grew up with my grandmother and I say the man she lived with because they, they weren't married. Um, so her boyfriend, pretty much. And, you know, I wasn't, there was just a lot of secrets in our home. So all I knew was that my dad lived in the U.S. and he left when I was one years old and that my mom was sick after she had me, but no one really explained what the illness was. So that was all that I had up until the age of six when everything changed in my life. Um, so at six, and did I met you, my mom. Did you get to see your mom before six or that's when you first met your mom? That's when I first met my mom. Yeah. Wow. So from a, you know, from I was born till the age of six, I, I just knew that she was in the hospital and you never really questioned. It was just like, oh, she's sick, but what does that really mean? And no one was really saying much. And then I knew my dad was in America and being in, you know, um, in Jamaica, you, you tend third world country, the U S is a big thing. So if you had like a family member who was in the U S it's like, there was hope there was, especially it was a parent, you know, it's like, oh, I'm going to get to go to America one day and, you know, leave the dismal, <laughs> you know, um, hard life of city life in this country, you know? And, um, so my dad used to write me letters and, you know, used to send money, um, to, you know, for school and things like that. And so for many years, I kind of looked to him as like this major figure in my life that I wanted to meet, um, after, especially after I met my mom. So I met my mom when I was six and I met my dad when I was six at different, you know, uh, time in different times. But, um, I met my mom and my grandmother, we took a walk down to the hospital and I didn't know that my mom was mentally ill. So going down to Bellevue hospital, um, in Jamaica, and we took that walk and you walk into this, on this compound and you see, you know, people who are struggling with mental health and, um, you know, for a child, it's kind of scary. And for me at the time and different and, you know, when, when your parents tell you, oh, your, your mom is sick and she's in a hospital, your, your mind, I mean, that's such a vast blanket statement. Like it could be, you know, um, anywhere, you know, and, you know, is she sick? Like she can't walk and she has a stomach. What, what sickness, you know, no one really told me what that was. So when I met her for the first time and realized that she was mentally ill because, you know, kids used to make fun of those people who had mental illness in school. So when I realized like, oh, my mom was in Bellevue hospital, that was like a very traumatic thing for me. And meeting her the first day, um, you know, she didn't, you know, I was six. She had me when she was 13. So she was a 19 year old girl. And, um, you know, I just remember, I still have that vivid picture in my mind of walking down this wooded hallway with some patients, um, locked away in a cell. And we walked up to my mom's cell and she's sitting on the bed and she looks at me and I could just remember, when she, she, she was happy to see my grandmother, but she wasn't happy to see me. Mm. And I remember that feeling of fear. So my first experience with my mom was fear. 
um, not a sense of love. And, and then, um, I was a trigger for her, you know, I, I guess we'll talk about that later, but I was a trigger for her when she saw me, um, she became very violent that day. So it was like, you know, they were just talking and I'm holding on to my grandmother because my grandmother is like mom to me now. Cause I've, you know, raised with her and I'm holding on to my grandmother and, um, you know, she, my mom got quiet and then she just started looking at me and then she just, you know, like all of a sudden my grandmother told me to leave because my grandmother probably had experienced this with her before. So I, I leave out of the cell that she was in and I just, she grabbed my grandmother and pushed her up against the wall and, you know, very violently and she just starts screaming and she, she hates me and, you know, these words are coming out of her mouth and the nurses are running down the hallway. And for me, and I just found myself running down the hallway, running outside because I was so scared. Um, and that was my first experience that day when I went home at it, because I, I struggled with asthma a lot when I was in Jamaica. And maybe those things was what triggered it because I never had it when I was in the U.S. But I just, I had an asthma attack on the way home. And I just remember feeling like I never wanted to see her after that, you know? And so my, my, so the big contrast was here was my mom, this violent woman, this woman who didn't really love me or want to see me. And here was my dad who lived in America, the place of dreams and opportunity, who was writing me letters and, um, and sending me gifts, <laughs> you know, sending me things. And so I wanted to go be with my dad. That was the vision. I want to go live with my dad. I don't want to stay in Jamaica. I want to, I want to leave this place and, and go where it was better. At least that's what I thought. <laughs> and then after you got home and your grandma was back, did you guys talk about the whole scene? I mean, it just, it, it's so, as you said, traumatic. I mean, did you just get to discuss it with her? Or how did you process or were you even able to begin to process something like that at, at such a young age? Um, not that I can remember, to be honest, I, I feel like all I remember my grandmother saying, whether it was that day or after that day was your mom got sick when you, she couldn't handle having you. And so she got, that made her ill because she had me at a young age. So that was what she told me. Um, and so I think to some level, looking back on it, you know, it becomes kind of like psychological because you're supposed to feel like a gift, mm -hmm. not uh, a burden or something that makes someone feel sick, <laughs> you know? Um, so, I mean, I, I don't think I was looking at it in that depth, but I'm sure in my mind, I was commute. That's what the communication was mm -hmm. to some level, you know? And then when, how old were you when you eventually learned what happened, you know, why your mother was only 13, you know, what she went through and all of the, all of the revelations around that. When I was 17, obviously, you know, I came to America and a lot of things happened over the years that I was here. And I found out that my mom was raped when she was 13 and it was by my dad. And, um, obviously, <laughs> and, um, that was what triggered 
why she felt like she couldn't, she didn't want to see me. That was the real reason. And I didn't know that till I was 17. Yeah. And, and that trauma from that whole experience was why she was in a, effectively an asylum or a hospital for years because of the trauma of her, her assault and everything that happened afterwards. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think it's a combination of a lot of things. It was definitely the trauma of that. The fact that she was young, um, the fact that she wasn't, um, no one spoke up for her because, you know, back then I believe in Jamaica, people think that once you were pregnant or you were raped, that you, you weren't, um, you know, pure and no one was going to marry you. So they hid it. They didn't want anyone to know. And here's a 13 year old girl who was taken advantage of and was, you know, basically took out, was taken out of school. So her whole life stopped, you know, just think of a 13 year old going to school, having fun with her friends, trying to learn life, falls in this situation. You think, well, my parents are going to stand up for me. And they're like, no, you know, obviously my dad wasn't prosecuted or anything like that. And we're going to hide it. We're going to pull you out of school. You're going to stay in the house for nine months because we don't want no one to know until you have the baby. And all that pressure of shame and being ostracized and being, you know, pulled out of her normal life and not being able to voice as if she did something wrong. Um, And then... Uh, you know, and then from there, basically she had me and then the man who did it, you know, he came around a little bit. Um, and then one day he picked up and he left and went to live his life. And I believe it was right after that, cause it was a year later after she had me, she just, you know, my grandmother said she just woke up one day and she just started crying and she wouldn't stop. Like she cried from six in the evening to almost 12 midnight Mm. and she just kept crying and my grandmother was like what's wrong and um Jean and my my mom's name is Jean and she's like and then in the middle of the night she came and she took me out of my crib and she threw me in the yard Mm. and that was the beginning of her illness and you know, I think too, because Jamaica at the time probably didn't have the means of therapy or they weren't thinking that they probably thought that was really extreme or not even knowing about postpartum depression and, you know, a lot of things that was involved. So they gave her shock treatment, which is very strong for a child. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just a lot of things that I think escalated the situation even more, you know? Yeah. And, and that she was just not, there was no justice and no protection. And so it's just one hurt after the next. I can't, it's hard to even fathom like all those things combined. Yeah. Um, that pain. So, so you're six years old. You didn't know this yet, of course, but you have this very painful encounter, traumatic encounter with your mom who's still sick. I mean, she's basically been locked away for her entire Mm -hmm. teen years. Um, and then that same year you met your dad, you had no idea yet about your dad, that he was an abuser. You didn't know any of this, but tell, tell us about how you first met him and then your encounters with him. Well, um, I, you know, I was home one day just running around the yard, being a troublemaker, (laughs) 
Um, and uh, I just remember you know, just practicing yeah, your lines. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, and then uh, a cab pulled up, a car pulled up, a Volkswagen pulled up, and this man steps out, and I'm I'm like shocked because I had a I had one photo of my dad. So when he walked up to the gate, I knew exactly who he was. And I didn't run to him. I, I was so frightened. I ran inside. <laughs> and I was like, you know, I told my grandmother that my dad was there. She was just like, oh, Josanne, please, your dad is not here. Because he he just came. He didn't tell anyone he was coming, you know. And and Josanne, was your grandma in touch with your dad? Yeah. Because he, she was send, he was sending mom money. So in her mind, he wasn't the abuser of her daughter. He was... I mean, how did she see your father? I mean, it sounds like well, she, she saw him as a bit of a lifeline, maybe financially, or how, how did that work? I think she... Because your grandma um, loved you. I mean, she she was caring for you, but it just sounds like there was no boundary there. Because I feel like my mom was her only daughter. That happened. So one of the reasons they didn't want my dad to be prosecuted because they didn't want me to be raised without a father. Like they rationalized it that way. So it's like, okay, the, 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 the mother is raped and you know, whatever. And now we can't say that the daughter don't have a dad. We want her to have a dad. So, you know, that's how they kind of rationalized it. And I know my, my grandmother had this, what do we, what do you call it? This love hate relationship with my dad. I knew that from a child. Like Mm -hmm. she, she liked him for sending things, but then there was this underlying thing. Like you're, you're sleazy. Mm -hmm. I, you know, she never said those words, but looking back, that's the word. Like you cannot be trusted or you're no good. Like, you know, she'll throw little words out there every now and then. And so you know, I just, I think as I was getting older, I thought it was more like, oh, because he left me and he went away and, you know, but I didn't know the depth of it. And I think she probably thought, because my dad was 23, my mom was 13. Um, and so she probably thought, well, you know, at least one of these daughters going to do something good, mm-hmm. Right. And like, like I said, again, like America was like the big goal. Mm -hmm. So it was like, if you knew anyone in America, especially a family member, life was going to be better for you. So I think she was holding on to that side of it and kind of disregarding the other side of, you know, um, it was something to be prideful about, you know, culturally, like, oh, you know, oh, you know, how is Josanne? You know, well, well, how is Jean? Let's not talk about Jean, but let's talk about our dad that lives in America, you know, mm-hmm. and that would change a conversation. And people saw you differently culturally if you had a family member in America. So did people not put it into their mind that he, they didn't think of him as a rapist. I mean, it sounds like there was this like agreement that was unspoken that he was off the hook for that. Yes. And, and, and was that because he was a man and because he moved to America? Like those, that combination, like man, he was a soldier in the Jamaican army. Mm -hmm. So he carried authority. Um, he was charismatic. 
He lives in America. He people loved him. Um, he was so he handsome. gets away with it. <laughs> yeah, it was a lot of things that wow. you know that kind of let people turn the other look the other way, if I may mm-hmm. say. Um, so he shows up, and you're six years old. Mm-hmm. And what what happens next? So he shows up when I was six and I was excited because going back to that picture, I was just like excited. I brought him to show my, introduce him to my friends and, you know, he brought gifts and, you know, took me around. And it was the first time I had like uh, a father figure because my step, my, you know, the man my grandmother lived with, he, he was more like a provider. Like he wasn't, he wasn't. You know, I mean, I would hang out with him at the bar, <laughs> not a place for little kids to hang out, but, you know, whatever. Um, you know, he'd buy me food and, you know, snacks and stuff, but he wasn't going to, the the love and the attention, that wasn't there. I, he never hugged me. I never got a hug from him, you know? And so being with my dad, my dad was a little bit more affectionate. It was the first time that I got a hug from a man and the first time someone told me they loved me um because that wasn't big also culturally um you know you I mean I mean now it might be different but then um you know culturally it wasn't like oh I love you cold the way Jamaicans let you know they love you is like I got you you going to school you got a roof over your head <laughs> you got food on the table I love you <laughs> okay um but so having my dad around and, you know, he came and he had an, you know, an American twang and he was just cool, you know, and charming and loving, if I may say. And, you know, one day he was there for two weeks and one day, um, we were just playing, we were sitting in the backyard and he bought me like coconut ice cream and, you know, um, he lifted me up, put me on his lap and, told me to give him a kiss, you know, I kissed him on the cheek and, and then he kissed me inappropriately. Um, at the time I didn't know what that was. I, I just knew this is awkward and weird and kind of nasty, but okay. Um, it's my dad. So what's, I don't understand it. I'm six. I don't know what it means. And so I just remember, I didn't, I don't remember feeling like I was violated necessarily, but I remember it was different because no one's ever done that. And when I went home, when my dad took me home that day, I never told my grandmother about the kiss. I just told her about the fact that we had ice cream and we hung out. And I think I'd never really thought of mentioning the kiss to her to some level, you know? Um, and I think I did probably later down and she, she kind of said, don't tell anybody that, but it was, it was just in conversation. So it wasn't like, mommy, you know what, you know, did this, it was just more like, Oh, you know? And she was like, don't tell anyone that, you know, but she never told me why. Um, so that was the first thing that happened, and I never took it to heart, you know. I just, it went, my dad went away, and the goal was to get me in the United States, and it happened four years later. I was 10. So, 
So you didn't see him for four years. And then you go, you get on a plane with your half brother. You, you went, you're in the Bronx and he, he's in the Bronx. So he, you basically moved in with him at 10 years old. Yes. So then what happens next? You're in the Bronx. You're, I mean, how are you feeling? And then what are the, what are the next things that happen for you? Well, you know, I'm in the Bronx and, um, I'm excited. It's New York, Big Apple, trains, Broadway, <laughs> you know, just all the, I'm just naming all the things that was, you know, as a kid, you're, you know, 34th street, you know, um, Macy's, you're like, <laughs> you know, just so much high rise buildings, even though it was the projects for me, it was like a castle <laughs> because it was bigger than anything I've ever seen, you know? And so it, I was excited. I lived with my dad. I had my cousin. I had my whole family on my dad's side lived in New York. So it was the first time I was around large family, like my aunties and cousins and, you know, uncles. And, and that was huge for me because I grew up as a single child, just my grandmother, my, and her, and her boyfriend. <laughs> and I was the only child on the compound. So I didn't have kids, you know, I mean, I would play with kids at school and stuff, but as far as family like that, I didn't have that. So that was huge for me and I was excited about it and promising. And then, you know, um, I guess, you know, cause he, my dad was, is married and he, um, my stepmom was a nurse, but she worked at night. So she was rarely home at obviously at nighttime. And when she was home during the day, she would be sleeping. So that's when a lot of things went on. So, um, and if she worked overtime where she worked at night and she didn't come home, like if she worked at night, there were times when she would come home early in the morning, but then there were times when she worked overtime meant that she was going to work like almost like a double shift. So she wouldn't come home to like probably six o'clock in the evening, like around that time after leaving at 11 at night, but you know, the night before. So there was a lot of time where I was alone with my dad, um, after school. So, you know, I come from school, my brother sometimes would have football practice and I would come home and, you know, my dad got home like around three or two o'clock around that time, two, three. And so if my mom, I mean, my stepmom wasn't there, you know, that was like a three hour span where we were together alone. Or if it was at night when she left to go to work, then, you know, and so the after school, it started with the after school situation. So I'd come home and if she wasn't there or if she was sleeping, um, you know, when I think about, and I want to say this because when I think about abuse, people think like, when we think of abuse, we think of the Hollywood expression of it, you know, a woman walking down the hallway and she's dragged and choked and her clothes is ripped off and she's raped, you know, or we, if it's happening in a home, we think of this menacing looking man, you know, who you just automatically know he's an abuser. And it's like, you know what? Actually, no. Most women are abused by people we know, whether it's a friend, a family member, or, you know, a, someone very close that we trust. And that's why it's so hard to believe because 
they're not the menacing-looking man we see in the movie. They are fathers, they're uncles, they're people who have respectable presence in society that we miss it. And, um, and that's the thing for my dad. My dad's very charismatic. Everyone loves him up until this day. Every, all my friends loved him when they come. I wish my dad was like, your dad is so cool. Everyone, he was the life of the party. He made you laugh. He, he was giving, he, you know, he was, he, um, he was funny. He was just all these things that kids want their dad to be like, you know, but then there was this other side of him that no one really knew. And obviously I lived with two boys in the house. So and my, I had a sister, a half sister, but she lived with her mom in Brooklyn. So she was only there on the weekends, you know, um, like maybe every other week. So it wasn't, um, something where, you know, oh, there was like three of us, you know, females in the house or something like that, where we can be like, okay, you know, um, so it was, people missed it. And as a child for myself, you know, it just started with first a lot of touching in inappropriate places. Like after I take a shower, he'll tell me go take a shower and he wants to drive me off or a lot of not groping, but just like, I just remember like he would sometimes lift me up and like rub me against his crotch, you know, like just things like that. And I'm like 10 years old, you know? And, um, the, I guess the big, so at that time I am now more aware <laughs> of my body and now I know this is inappropriate, but what do you say? Because the thing we have to also understand about sexual molestation is that, especially when it's happening between a child and a guardian, a parent, is that God placed an innate love in a child for a parent mm. to trust them, to protect them. It's, it, God placed it there. So when a parent crosses that bound, it leaves confusion. It makes you second guess yourself because you're like, I know this is not supposed to be happening, but this is my guardian. This is my parent. And I love him. And uh, am I supposed to speak back? Am I supposed to even talk back? Because you're taught to respect your parents. And so now you're silenced. And there's all these emotions, you know? And that's the thing about abuse is that there's a grooming, there's a trust, you know, um, there is a manipulation, there's a sense of power, dynamics and control, um, you know, and so you're not, your clothes is not ripped off, you're, you're not dragged, but you're dragged by your emotions, you know, and um, you're ripped of your voice and um, your identity in some level. Um, and at a young age, you find, I found myself, let me say for me, starting the role start to switch now where I'm no longer, I'm now trying to protect him because I love him and I don't want to see my dad hurt or taken away or, 
whatever, you know, or for people to think something like this is happening. Or was that, was that one of the tools he used to, to keep you quiet in a way is saying, don't tell anyone. I mean, that's typically part of the abuse. You know what was funny? He never told me not to tell anyone. Cause I did end up telling someone, um, a, a girl, you know, a kid at school, my age. Um, and that brought a lot of problems, um, as well. But I think it was more of my, that's why my book, one of the reasons why my book is called beautiful is twofold. It's that it's beautiful because of Ecclesiastes 311 that says God has made all things beautiful in its time. But the other flip side of it was that my dad, when my dad used to touch me and violated me, even when he kissed me the first time. And I was like, oh, I told him, I said it was nasty because I remember wiping my mouth and he said, that's because you're beautiful. And so my, my first encounter with the word beauty was in a perverted way, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and so it's, 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 it's playing on the, the emotions of, uh, a child, a girl child who wants to hear that she's beautiful mm-hmm. and wants to feel loved and loved by dad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so there's, there's a lot of confusion. So he never necessarily told me to not tell anyone that I can remember. Let me say that. But innately, I knew if I did, it would cause a problem. And it sounds like eventually you did tell a classmate and it caused problems. And what was the consequence of that for you? Well, um, I went to school, told a friend, you know, asked her to keep it a secret. And she told her mom, mom told the guidance counselor. And before you know it, I'm in the guidance counselor's office and they're asking me questions. And I knew this was big and scary at the same time because now they want me to write the statement and I didn't even tell them half the things that took place because I knew how serious it was and social worker came to the house and that was the first time my I vocalized that my dad touched me and that was very I just remember a very scary time because I was standing in the living room and um, my stepmother was there and social worker, my dad, and they were asking me questions. My dad was like, no, you know, I was, she took a shower and I probably, she misunderstood and I dried her off and which he did, but he did more than that. And, um, you know, so then they took the statement, they left and they left everything. you with them. Huh? They, the social worker left you with them. Yes. Yeah. Um, and that went on. So we had, we had Thanksgiving and now, now the whole family knew about it. And so that created a lot of division and ostracized, you know, I was, I would say ostracized because Thanksgiving came and, you know, I could hear parents telling their, my uncles and aunts telling their kids not to play with Josanne because she's a troublemaker and she lied on her dad and, you know, and. And did did the abuse stop for that period? And it did. 
It and then, did. and then when did it start? And then, but nothing changed. You didn't, um, nobody intervened, right? No one intervened because I think from that September, so then we had, I mean, we had, we had Thanksgiving, went back to school. I think the guidance counselor kind of talked to me a little and I was like, nothing is happening or whatever. We had Christmas and then, you know, we had that holiday going into January and by spring, I don't know if because the case was continued, you know, it was an open case, mm -hmm. obviously. We had spring break and my dad came home during spring break one day and he was like, you know, you brought a lot of trouble to this house. We can't afford to keep you here anymore. And we're taking you back to Jamaica and you're leaving tonight. And it just took me like a break, like when, I don't even know how to explain it. Like, I think, you know, when you say as a child for me, I think that was the first time I had my heart broken because I remember how devastated I was. I was really devastated because one, I felt like I didn't, I didn't, I didn't let my dad, I let my dad down, even though I was the one mm -hmm. being hurt. I let my grandmother down because you don't you don't come to America to be shipped back to America. You come to just, America to make a life for yourself. So I felt like I just, failed her. It just amazes me the capacity of a victim to feel like it's their fault. I know. Yeah. You know, like so many girls, so many women, so many stories. And to hear you, I mean, it's just heartbreaking to hear the heartbreak. I mean, you were losing, like this is your dream to be in America, but everything was against you. And mm -hmm. here you are taking it on as if you're the one, you know, causing pain to the, your own abuser, to your grandmother who put you here, you know, sent you there. Yeah. No, totally. Totally. Um, so yeah, you know, he took me back to Jamaica and showed up. Another surprise again, he showed up and my grandmother didn't know I was coming. And, and you know, my grandmother, you know, the, the story was, oh, Josanne went to school and told a lie on me and, you know, all of this stuff. And my, I just remember my going back to secrets again, because I remember my grandmother didn't say anything. She was quiet and she looks at him because she knew what he did to my mom. So, and she never told me what he did to my mom. So here I am saying similar things, right? So she, she must've known in that moment. Yeah. But then what was her, her next move? I mean, she has you in her home again. So she, you know, we, we she took me to, you know, end up going to school, Christian school. And so, you know, everyone is wondering like, why is this little girl back? <laughs> what happened? And now we have to keep it a secret. And there were just so many secrets, man. Like, um, and you know, I went back to school, but you know, my grandmother was living a life. She was living with this man who wasn't abusive physically, but he was definitely abusive verbally. Mm. So, so she, she was a victim too. Yes. I mean, that's, what's hard. If you, if you're victimized and you're, you, you're, you're living in that, you become voice, you can become voiceless. And then you, it's like, 
you know, when you, when someone close to you is also victimized, it's yeah. hard to find the voice. Yeah. Totally. When you're, you're already not using it for yourself. It's so hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so how long, how long were you in Jamaica and then you end up back again in New York and then I was there for two years. Okay. Um, so my grandmother couldn't take care of me. Things were getting worse financially. The boyfriend was becoming more, you know, because he also had an alcohol problem. Mm-hmm. And she was just like, you need to go back to the U.S. I cannot take care of you here. And what I need for you to do is I need you to pick up the phone and call your dad and tell your dad and your stepmother that you lied and that you're sorry and you won't do it again. So I, you know, at first I was just like, no, I'm not going to do it. But then... You know, and for the parents out there that's listening, I think it's so important for us to know about children, the dynamics of children and parent, because kids want to be trusted. Just the same way you're protecting your child, your child want to protect you, you know? And um, and I saw how much my grandmother was suffering. And even at that age, I felt like it was my responsibility to take care of my grandmother. I wasn't thinking of, man, I cannot go back to U.S., you know? I I was rationalizing, well, I'm young. My grandmother's getting older. If I go back, maybe my dad is not going to say, do this again because of what happened. And I'm sure my grandmother was probably thinking the same thing. Maybe. I don't know. But she was playing Russian roulette. Like, let's see what happens, you know? And we made that phone call. And I think like six months or three months later, I was back in, in the U S you know, and, but this time it was different because when I came before, it was just like family members and everyone was at the airport and it was like this big greeting. And when I came back, it was only my dad picking me up. Mm. And that was the, the, the message, like, the only person that wants you here is your dad. But that puts me in a very sticky situation. And he made sure he told me that on the way home. So if I needed, you know, a uh, woman, you know, stuff, you know, you, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm now I'm seeing my period and, you know, I go to my dad. I don't go to my stepmother. You know, I need money. I go to my dad. I need clothes. I go to my dad. Everything was, I go to my dad. But that kind of played in his favor. And now I know because of the punishment, if I say anything, I could be sent back to Jamaica. So now you don't say anything. And things just escalated from one thing to the next. So um, from my got back to the country, um, 12 going on 13, um, till I was 16. Um, and I, I would say the first two years was de- definitely difficult because it was no longer just touching Now it was very sexual and, um, and then I started to change. So the flip side of that is like, you know, here's this girl that's cheery and laughing and talking to now this hard, rebellious, according to my family at the time, um, and angry. 
teenager because I wasn't able to really say anything. And now I start hanging out with boys and, you know, the cycle just starts to continue and coming home late one o'clock in the morning because I don't want to be touched. And that's the best time to come home when everyone is home. And, but people thought I was breaking curfew, you know, and just all these things. Um, and then, um, by the time I got to 14, I was pregnant at 14 and by my dad. So it was like, my dad gave me my first kiss. My dad took my virginity and my dad got me pregnant. Um, like all the beautiful things that a woman should experience in another way. <laughs> um, you know, and I think that's when everything changed for me. I think it was after the pregnancy because, um, you know, obviously he wanted to hide it and I was, you know, he accused me that I was, you know, maybe I was out there with someone or something and I was just like, I never had sex with anyone. Like, what are you talking about? And, um, and you know, one day just pretended like we, I went to school and, and he took me to an abortion clinic and aborted a child. And, um, I think it was after that, I just remember the emptiness I felt coming home and I just remember, you know, it's funny how there's certain things you remember in certain, whether it's a good thing or a traumatic thing. Um, I just remembered looking at kids and feeling like I wasn't one, but I was one. And I, I think it was after that, the darkness kind of came in, I would say, um, where I was okay. just angry. And he drove you. I mean, that was... Uh, yeah. I mean, you were in his control. He was just victimizing you again and again. And he, you're pregnant now. He blames you. It's also typical. And then he sets an abortion appointment, drives you. Was there any, like, conversation with you? I mean, he's an abuser, so probably not. But did you even talk about that? Or was it just like, oh, here, next step? I don't remember anything that he said. I don't remember anything he said coming um, to the abortion clinic. Uh, I, I, I just remember a lot of silence. But what he did say before we got in was, if they ask you how you got pregnant, tell them it was a boy at school. So, and they did because we got to the abortion clinic and yeah, the nurse, you know, whoever co comes in there, whatever. Um, and my dad was with me and they asked me, if, they did ask me if I wanted to keep the child or didn't want to keep the child. And um, they asked me if, uh, you know, who it is. And I said, a boy at school. My dad was sitting right there. And, um, you know, and I was like, no, I didn't want to keep the child. And um, and he was in the room physically when yes. they were asking. So he was physically there while they're having you fill out the form. Yes. Yeah. I don't know if it was because, because I, I was underage, I was 14. So, I, I mean, I don't, you know, um, 
So a- yeah. after after that, how much longer did the abuse go on for? Um, I think it went on for like a year, mm-hmm. and then I started to stand up for myself. Like I think what once after the so maybe like maybe not even quite a year, maybe like six or seven months or something after the abortion. And then I started to just like really stand up for myself and he didn't like that. So before it was never, it was always sexual abuse. He never verbally abused me in a sense, like, you know, spoken. But when I, when I started to stand up for myself, it became verbal and physical. So yeah. So, I mean, I know folks listening to your story are just like, our hearts are just like, ah, oh, you have been through the worst. I mean, the worst kinds of, you know, physical, sexual abuse, um, you know, abortion, all these things um, from a very young age. And here you are, you know, you're an accomplished author, you're married, um, you are just, I, I know your message is one of saying you can move on, you can heal, you can you can even forgive um, after such terrible trauma. So how did it go from the Josanne who's angry, who's now fighting, you know, physically fighting your dad to within just a few years, your world has gone 180? Well, I'm going to say this. You know, parents leave their kids inheritance. And some people are fortunate to have homes and, you know, physical inheritance. But if anything, my grandmother left me was God, regardless of the situation. My grandmother took me to church when I was a little girl. I used to go to church a lot. I was aware of Jesus. I was aware of God, but I didn't know him as Lord of my life. I didn't know him. I didn't have a relationship. It was just a religious act, but there were seeds planted. And my grandmother gave me the scripture, which is Psalms 27, that says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Whom shall I be afraid? But one part of that 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 chapter, um, one one part of the the verse in that chapter says, "The Lord, even though my father and my mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me, and I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living." And that was the first. Um you know, scripture that I had memorized. And my grandma told me to memorize that scripture before I came to this country. And it was the only gold that I had in my pocket that I felt God used to change my life. Because even when me and my dad had that fight before I ran away from home, I wanted to take my dad's life. That's what it came down to. And that scripture as God would have it, came back up in my soul. That scripture saved not just my dad's life, but it saved mine. And I didn't know where I was running to. I just packed a suitcase and dragged it across the courtyard to a friend's house and and just lived day by day, you know, um, with, a, with, with a little hint of faith. Because sometimes we think we need to have a huge amount of faith, but sometimes it's just one step at a time. And my step was I needed to finish high school. I need to finish high school. It was a goal of mine. And, and, and I did. And then it was college. And 
you know, I've made some, obviously some mistakes and some things along the way, a lot of bumps <laughs> in the, in the road. Um, you know, cause when you're in a situation like that, you start looking for love in the wrong places and the wrong faces. And you realize you come to a point to answer your question. I realized that no one outside of God and outside of what needed to happen internal of myself was going to save me. Nothing, no one, like I needed a greater source than human being or things or money or fame or anything. I needed something higher. And I knew that in my life, there were little moments where I felt like I felt God, you know, a little glimpse of God that was there, but I knew there was something greater. And, um, and so, to, you know, to answer your question, I think from being broken enough and hitting the ground enough, seeking things outside of God and seeking things outside of the, 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 the invisible things that really matter matters. Um, I was like, okay, God, I, I, I surrender. I, I hand in my pain. I hand in my brokenness. I hand in my own wisdom. I hand in all these things to you. Here I am. And that was when I decided to, it was right after college and I moved out to LA because um, I wanted to pursue acting. And I was like, you know, I left an abusive boyfriend relationship. It wasn't physical necessarily, but it was definitely emotional abuse. And I came out to LA and I was just broken and I knew I needed to find a church because I remember as a kid, the, the, the greatest joy I had was in a church. And, um, that day I went to church and the preacher spoke the gospel and I just knew that I was that woman at the well that needed living water. I knew that, um, that everything else failed me and I, you know, I gave my life to the Lord and God just changed me over time. It wasn't, you know, instant. But I, it was instant in the fact that I knew something happened in my heart for sure. But the manifestation of that, I had to walk out. And through prayer and being around people, um, I call people are like trees, that people who are in God are like trees. They give off oxygen um, and life to me as a young girl and, you know, going to prayer meetings. Like, it, you know, that's what Beautiful on a Shame is about, also is about taking responsibility because we're not always in charge of how we come into the world. We have no saying in that. We just know we're here, but we definitely have, we are given power to how we go out of the world by our choices and taking responsibility. And I'm not saying it's easy, but I'm saying it's possible. And so, you know, I just started to like really did not want to perpetuate what my mom went through and what my grandmother went through. And I was determined and intentional about living a different life and what I was going to accept and seeking restoration. Um, you know, and that came from, um, studying scripture and reading the word and putting myself in an environment that was going to feed my soul. Um, and over the years, things just begin to change. My heart began to change. And, 
when I understood grace and forgiveness, um, which leads up to me eventually forgiving my dad, because I realize that we are all born in sin and shape and iniquity and no one comes in this world perfect, you know, and it is God who's perfect. And, but is God also who can make us into perfection. <laughs> um, and so I, I started to be convicted, not just about the sins that happen to me, but the sins that I also commit myself, um, you know, outside of my dad, right? Because, you know, and this is not a, I pray people understand this, it's not an insensitive, like a statement in the sense that I feel God is very close to the brokenhearted and close to the fatherless. And those who are, um, you know, there's no justice where there's injustice. There's so many scriptures that tells us that. But I also believe that in our trials and in our um, misfortunes and our tribulation, that God is so powerful that he uses them to reveal identity in us. And we can use our situation that we've been through as a fortress where it keeps us enclosed and keep us um, in prison, or we can use it as a fuel that drives us to um, express and manifest the glory of God. And that's what really God did in my life was through those, it didn't happen overnight, but just daily of, of stumbling and getting up and, and, and making choices with my life, I started to become transformed internally until what my dad did was no more a, this, this, this thing that I filter my identity through and more of just an event that took place in my life. And there was a comma and a comma and a comma after that. It was not a period, you know, the, 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 the 10 year old girl, the 14 year old girl that was in the abortion clinic was not a period. God had a comma, a continuation of life for me. And, um, and that just came through the Holy spirit, through God just working in my life. And it's a, it's a partnership, you know, it's a, a co-labor, um, co-laboring of me and faith and, and, and walking that out. And I think that's accessible to every single person in the world, you know? Um, and so I started to just really have a more of a sensitivity and even seeing my eye, my, my, myself through God's eyes and realizing that no, my father, you know, my dad doesn't, um, get a pass in the sense of, no, God is not like, oh, I don't care about what he did, right? But I also see it from the sense of God sees sin as sin. (laughs) And when I started to see my own fallen nature, you know, some people commit murder, some people commit all these other acts. My dad decided that he was going to commit the act of molestation and rape. That was his thing, you know. 
that he didn't surrender to God, you know, and it, it just caused so much, so many damage down the line to everyone, you know, not just myself, my mom and my grandmother and the, the, the dysfunction of our family. Right. And that's what sin does, right? It, it, it's a constant decaying of, <laughs> it doesn't stop until you stop it, <laughs> you know? And it's um, also that, so. that lie that our, our sins don't have to affect other people that they still do because they affect yes. us, whether they're direct sins against somebody or even sins against ourselves or sins in yes. our mind, you know, that it all does in the end um, affect us and others. Yes. And deteriorate, like you say, it causes that deterioration. So, mm-hmm. I mean, this is an incredible, um, in a way, rebirth. I mean, certainly to be born again, to re- see who God is, have that discovery of grace for the first time, um, at least to it, choose it, you know, say, yeah. I want Jesus, I want you. Um, yeah. I remember like different moments in my life that I would just say, Jesus, I need you. I don't fully understand you or this, or it doesn't, you know, I don't have all the answers. That's part of the reason I need you. Cause I don't, yes. I don't, I don't understand. I know my limit. I know my sin. Um, I know my need. So tell me how you got to the place where you're forgiving your father, because there's this incredibly, um, powerful scene in your book, beautiful, that is a story of you forgiving your dad. Well, you know, through my walk with God, I um, eventually, you know, just serving and um, walking with the Lord, I met, you know, a, an amazing man and um, in ministry. And, um, you know, we decided we were going to get married. Mm-hmm. And, you know, every girl's dream, right, is to have her dad walk her down the aisle. Well, I, at least majority of girls. I don't know. Some people might be like, no, but you know. Well, and um, if it's a no, it's because there's probably some sort of neglect or problem or, or something. Yeah, yeah. It's because of sin. It's because of some brokenness, you know, in that yeah. in that relationship. And so, I, um, you know, I was planning this wedding, and I didn't know that. As I'm planning it, I'm like. You know you need somebody walking down the aisle, right? <laughs> like, you know, it wasn't like a thought at the moment. But, you know, I'd reach a point in my life where I prayed about everything. Everything, especially huge decisions that I'm going to make with my life. I bring it before the Lord. And um, I had great men of God, brothers, you know, in Christ, fathers in Christ, that I could have asked. Um, so it wasn't as if there were anyone I couldn't have asked, but I prayed about it. And the honest truth is I thought God was going to give me an answer of picking one of my brothers or fathers in Christ to give me away because I was just like, who should I pick? Who, you know, my dad was not in the cards for me, to be honest. You know, were you still at this point? So it's been years since you had left his abuse. Um, You weren't under his control anymore. You're grown. You're you're on the spiritual renewal journey. You are living your faith. You're you know doing your creative work in Los Angeles. You're meeting the love of your life. Um, Were you in touch with your dad at all, or had you had any communication with him? Okay, so he's as far as you know. Oh, the picture. Um, yeah, like yeah. I, I still had the phone number because they lived at the same place. I knew, you know, I had um, cousins that I was still kind of close with 
to some level that I kind of knew here, you know, there, like hear things about him and things like that. But we weren't communicating as in like, hey, how are you? Like none of that. Um, so he, you know, I went and I prayed about it and my, the, the answer that I heard was call your dad. And I'm like, you know what? Let me pray again. Cause this, this praying going through, <laughs> this but was, praying. It, was the answer call your dad and ask him right away or just call your dad and there's unfinished work there. I mean, wh- well, it was, it was more like you. call your dad. Um, and in my sense, when I heard call your dad, I felt like, well, one for sure closure, mm-hmm. but two, it was like, call him and say what? <laughs> like, I'm getting, you know, because I was praying about who's gonna get, walk me down the aisle, and that's the right. the answer was call your dad, you know, and I, I just remember. You know, I'd reach a point in my life to, you know, because, you know, when we, we, we talk about things like that, people, it can come off like, oh, super spiritual. But what people have to understand is that all these revelation and things that I am talking about now took over a period of time. It wasn't something where I just woke up one day and was just like, huh, you know, it took an investment in my mm-hmm. spiritual life where you know, I, I had, I, I had, um, nurtured a prayer life, you know, where I was waking up every morning, four o'clock, five o'clock in the morning, praying and reading and, and seeking God's face and going on a fast. And like, I was very at that place of being intentional about my spiritual disposition. So when I heard, cause I felt like I knew God's voice when he was talking to me, call your dad. At first I was a little bit hesitant. And then it was almost like what I heard was, can you honor someone who's dishonorable? That was a question that was coming up to me because call my dad. My answer in my heart was why I don't need to call him. He doesn't deserve to be called he's definitely not coming to my wedding. Like all of the things that you're going to innately feel, you know, but in my, in my spirit, there was the other part that was saying, can you honor someone who is dishonorable? And so when I called my dad, I did make that phone call and it wasn't a happy phone call. Like, Hey, how are you? It wasn't one How of those can things. It, be? it was yeah. it was more of a it was by like a I was it was almost like I was a robot, right? Like I was I just picked up the phone and I was just dialed a number. And so I, I wanna say like obedience, we don't always have to feel to do the right thing. Cause we always feel like we need to feel happy to do the right thing or do the thing that we think God is calling us to do. But when, when, and I think it's so powerful and important to make that distinction of like in the spiritual life, 
um, it's not just these random inspirations. I mean, it can definitely feel like a random inspiration, but it's, it's a, it's a practice of prayer and discernment. And you felt after your own prayer and discernment that you were supposed to call him and reconnect with him. Um, but you know, how does this fit in? And obviously we want to hear about how that went and, and how it ended with that. How does this all connect with, cause you know, he's, he abused, he was, he, he committed horrible crimes against you. And how, what does it mean to forgive is really the question here. What does it mean to forgive him? Cause it sounds like you were basically being asked to forgive ultimately. Mm-hmm. Um, but what does forgiveness actually mean? Does it mean you have to invite him to your wedding or, or can it no, mean something else? Not necessarily. I think every, and I must say this, I think every case is different. Every person's situation is different and God's going to talk to you differently and, and, and treat a certain situation different. For me, it was important looking back on it because, you know, I, I called him and he did come three, uh, three days before my wedding and I was able to have a conversation. It was like a moment by moment thing with him. And it was the first time I ever confronted him about everything he had done um, to me as a child, and um, and you know he showed he showed remorse, you know. Um, so he acknowledged. As, he acknowledged. Yes, he acknowledged he- it. And um, you know, I didn't know if I was going to still, you know, invite him to give me away. He was definitely going to come to the wedding, but I just remember we were sitting at a cafe, and 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 I I just felt like the Lord was like grace extend grace and mercy to him and um and i understood going back to forgiveness i think sometimes the the reason why we find it hard to forgive is because of how we look at sin and how we look at ourselves with forgiveness because um you know like i shared earlier when i understood the cross and understood why God, Jesus Christ died for every person in this world, um, is because of sin and forgiveness. Like, no, you know, everyone has fallen short, sin and fall short of the glory of God. And when I understood forgiveness to the depth of myself, I was able to extend that to someone because I understood that even if my dad didn't abuse me and didn't didn't do the things he did, I would still need grace. I would still need God. I would still need forgiveness. I was not spotless. I, I still did things that was displeasing. And to other people, well, you didn't rape anyone. Like, that's huge, you know? But when we compare the standard of God to the standard of our moral self, it's, you know, scripture tell us that our righteousness is like filthy rags, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like we 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 look at sin by by degrees. Like, oh, you murdered. Okay, well, I just told a lie, so I'm down here. I'm not as bad, you know. But the heart is desperately deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? <laughs> you know. Um, you know. We even hear in the scriptures that if you if you're angry at someone, it's like you you kill them in your heart. You know. So God is not looking at just the manifestation of sin. He's looking also at the, the state of our heart, you know, and I understood that. Let me just say that to make it short. I understood that from a spiritual level in the moment that I asked my dad um, to come to my wedding and I was also being obedient and it wasn't, it wasn't just, I had a peace about it. There was a mm. peace that I had about it. 
and no one knew anything. They, I mean, until I did my play, everyone knew the story and they were just like, oh my gosh, what? You know, but I invited him and to, to, to talk about what forgiveness is. Forgiveness to me is releasing releasing the judgment, releasing the revenge, releasing the person from our soul that we hold onto over and over for what they did and handing that over to God and saying, God, if we had to take it deeper, I am, I am extending what you have extended to me. Much is given, much is required. I'm extending what you extend to me. I don't, you don't have to feel it because you're not going to always feel like doing it, but it's an actual choice. We have the choice to forgive and it doesn't come easy. Yes, it is a process. And when we do forgive, we're not just releasing the person. We're releasing our own selves as well from the torture of holding someone in our heart. So not only have that person violated you in whatever way, we constantly have them violate us in our soul over and over every minute we hold on to what they have done. It's a constant bondage and captivity. And when we forgive, we're saying, God, I trust you. I receive your forgiveness over everything I have done. And I'm extending it to someone and I'm releasing them, but I'm also releasing myself. And we allow God to move in that situation. Does that mean you got to invite the person to your wedding? No. Does that mean you, you, you might never, you know, for those who have been in, in the situation similar to me, you might never get the opportunity to meet your perpetrator, if I may say and them saying they're sorry. How do you release that? How do you forgive that? It starts inside. It's, it's an internal seeking and a, a, a daily choice, you know, that we have to make. I make that choice still every day, you know, because I can find 10, you know, when someone sin against you and you, you look at your life, you can see the traces of their mistake sometimes catches up into your life, you know, ways when my, my dad didn't teach me how to, what was true love. So I chose men who didn't love me. My, you know, there were certain things I didn't get from my dad. So I made a lot of mistakes and stumble along the way. And what do you have to say? I, I have one more question on this because, um, I, I mean, it's just incredibly powerful that, and it's a forgiveness that, you know, God gave you the grace for. It's just beautiful that yes. you were able to do that. And it's just, it's a very different message than I think we're used to hearing because, you know, sexual violence and abuse and harassment, it's just such a, you know, epidemic today. They say one out of every nine girls, you know, underage girls are yes. abused by an adult. Um, it's about one out of every 40 or 50 boys. And it just, uh, it, it, so many people are, are living with this. And there's a lot of talk about um, boundaries, which I think is very important, you know, because in cycles of abuse, sometimes that is um, perpetuated by the 
inability, especially for women who blame themselves, to have the boundaries to, to, to try to leave an abusive situation. And that can be really, really hard to do, sometimes even feel impossible based on circumstances. Um, but how do, you, how do you define, and I know you said already, it, it depends case by case. You know, you had that grace and you had that calling you felt from God to specifically forgive your father in that way, have him at your wedding. But what would you say to someone listening who has been told, maybe they're out of their abusive situation, thanks, thank God, and maybe in their heart they forgive their abuser, you know, they're, they're working on that, um, but they also um, want boundaries. They don't want to have that abuser in their life anymore. They're trying to walk a separate path. Um, can you talk about the forgiveness that includes boundaries or how you see those two things? Well, I'm, it's wonderful you asked that question because even though I forgave my dad, I still have boundaries. I mean, you know, after he came to my wedding and um, he left, I tried to kind of continue a relationship with him. And, you know, he was kind of a little bit disrespectful, you know, to me, to my, you know, um, spouse. And, and then God was like, you did what I asked you to do. You don't need to continue this relationship. You don't need to, you know, so to answer your question, God is so gentle and he cares about Yes, he cares about us for, you know, forgiveness is in some way for yourself as well, you know? Mm -hmm. So he wants us to forgive so that we can heal and so that we can live um, fruitful lives and not be taken captive by this situation. And the boundaries are out of love and protection. So, you know, God doesn't want us to put ourselves in arms way, whether it's emotionally, physically, verbally, sexually. He we can forgive and still keep a distance. We can forgive and, um, and, and don't feel like we have to call that person. You know, it doesn't mean we have to have relationship. Forgiveness doesn't give the license to, for someone else, you know, someone who's abused you to enter through your life. Forgiveness is a release of that person from our soul in order that we can have our life to continue, um, in an abundant way, you know? So it is great. And, and boundaries is an act of love. You know, that's something that I'm even learning more in this season outside of the situation that when we set boundaries for people and situations in our life, it's us um, also knowing that we are daughters of the king and the king wants us to be protected and for us to guard our hearts, you know, which is the wellspring of life. So I would encourage anyone to set those boundaries that you are comfortable um, with and that keeps you safe and that keeps you productive and live a fruitful life moving mm -hmm. forward. Um, you not talking to the person who abused you doesn't mean that you didn't forgive them. It means that you are being wise and you are setting these boundaries so that you can um, live a, a, a life of abundance in God. That's beautiful. That's a, a very powerful distinction. And I think back to what you're saying earlier about prayer you know, for a person of prayer who's studying God's word, who's studying God's calling and the way he wants us to live, um, we can be more sensitive to those special, you know, acts of love or forgiveness he wants us to do and how to do them. Yeah. Um, but I think that's, that's very powerful to talk about how forgiveness and boundaries actually go together because boundaries are not just about loving and protecting yourself. They're also about preventing someone else 
from enabling them or giving them permission or giving them space to harm, you know, and, yes. and that's, that's, a, that's, you know, giving them space to sin. And you're saying, no, you're not, you don't have that space here. You know, that's, yes, that's not totally. permitted in my home. That's not permitted in my life. Um, and so it's an act of love for others too, to set, to set those boundaries. Yes. You're, um, you've traveled the country giving, you're telling your story. You gave a Ted talk, um, you wrote your book and using spoken word, you actually have dramatized and told the story, stories from your life. Um, you've used art in this and that's how I became aware of your story. You've used art, um, your creativity in this beautiful way. Thank I love, you. I know we've been talking a while now and I so appreciate the time. I'd love to close this out with your thoughts on the power of art and words and using what your, you know, your gift of acting to tell stories um, that educate, but that also inspire people to, to, to be able to forgive and to be able to have faith. Um, I think art is a great medium because people use it a lot to, it communicates, art is, it, you know, as an actress, one of the, the, the thing that they define acting as is um, living under imaginary circumstances, right? Mm -hmm. Um, life under imaginary circumstances, and it's it's it it reflects. As an artist, Nina Simone said this: an artist is here to reflect the signs of the time. And so, I believe God gave me this gift, these gifts, and my I'm reflecting the signs of the time where we're living in a time where women are taken advantage of more than, you know, ever before, um, in the sense of, I mean, rape and all these things were happening. We had it from the book of Genesis, <laughs> like, you know, it's not new. Um, but we're more vocal about it now. Let me say that in our society. And I feel like our, the greatest artist is God. Um, we see it in the expression of the world. We see that we are his poema, his poem. Mm -hmm. And we, you know, for me as an artist, I want to express God's heart um, heart in art. Mm -hmm. And so um, <laughs> that was like a tongue twister <laughs> like right it. there. Um, and, you know, so for me, I... I, I love, I think it's a great way to tell stories. I think Jesus was the greatest storyteller and he told parables and things that communicate in his time what he wanted people to understand. And so I use poetry and I use acting to do that in my art as mm -hmm. well as writing um, so that I can communicate, you know, hopefully communicate God's heart to someone else. So yeah. I love it. And last question. Thanks for letting this go so long. Um, for people who are listening, especially if there's a woman listening, uh, maybe a man, but a woman, a girl listening who um, has been a survivor of abuse. And, you know, I'm sure listening, there's a lot that in your story they may relate to or just are inspired by. What would be some words you might have? Um, so many of the words already are for for, for them, but um, what, what would be some final words you'd have for someone who maybe is still wrestling with that part of their story, um, but they don't want to be defined by it. Hmm. The main word that comes to me, two words that comes to me right now is grace and gentleness. 
that one of the things that I have discovered about God is that God is gentle mm-hmm. and he cares about the tiniest little thing that affects our heart that he doesn't expect us to know the big picture overnight. What he does desire is that we take steps with him, little steps. I love the scripture that says, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you will move mountains. He didn't say big faith. He says, you just need this, just this little bit because I am, I am that I am. I am the big thing. I am the thing that's going to take your nothing and make it into something. I am the extraordinary that, that takes your ordinary and make it into something magnificent. And if we just put a little bit of faith, if you put a little bit of faith in God, and say, I give you my pain, I give you my brokenness, I give you my sadness, I give you, um, I give you my anger, I give you all these things. What we'll realize that God is close to the brokenhearted. God is close to the brokenhearted, and. I'll end with this. Psalms 139 says, Where can you go from my spirit? Where can you flee from my presence? If you are in the dark, I am there. When you wake up, I am there. If you're out in the middle of the sea, I am there. That even in your darkest moment, God is there. And that's the little seed of faith, and that will take you a long way. So I would just encourage that you are made an image of God, which is the image of love, and that a father loves. You might not have a father, the earthly father, that you feel loved you, but you have a heavenly father that love outweighs so many things. He says the thought of you is more than the grain of sand on the sea. I don't know about you, but there's a whole lot of thoughts that you cannot (laughs) count, and they are wonderful. So I just encourage you, um, whoever is listening, that God is gentle, loving, and there's grace for you, no matter what you're going through. Beautiful. Thank you, Josanne. You are amazing. Thank you, Lila. It's been an honor to talk to you. Thanks for sharing your heart, your story. (laughs) (laughs) You're awesome. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks so much for joining this episode of the Lila Rose Show. If you enjoyed it, if you liked it, please share it with your friends and family. This will help the podcast reach more people. You can also leave it a review on Apple and give it five stars. That will also help it reach more people. And as always, I love to hear your feedback or thoughts. You can send them to thoughts at lilaroseshow.com. 
I also am on Instagram and I love to respond to direct messages there. Sometimes I'm not able to get to them all. So the thoughts at lilarosho.com is a great place um, because I do read all of those emails. Uh, thank you all so much and have a wonderful rest of your week and I'll see you back next week.